Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. Thanks for tuning in to listen. We're going to be talking about 1 Peter 1 and verse 17 today. As we jump into our study, I want to remind you of something that we talked about last week and in previous weeks. This letter is written primarily to Gentiles in the first century, who in 1 Peter 2.10, it says of them, which in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The law of Moses was to the children of Israel. The law of Moses served as a middle wall of partition or as a wall of division between Jew and Gentiles of old, Ephesians 2, 11 through 17. That just means those that were of Israel and everyone else were separated from those that were of Israel. So I want you to think as we enter into our study today about how this is relevant. If you were living in the first century and you were a Gentile, you were a Christian, there were things that you were going to have to face because of the transition among the Jews, among the children of Israel from the law of Moses to Christ. For example, in Acts 16, Verses 1 through 3, Paul comes to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, there was a certain disciple there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, and believed, but his father was a Greek, meaning is a Gentile, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul circumcised Timothy so that Timothy could preach among the Jews. Now, I want you to think about this challenge. It wasn't that Timothy had to be circumcised, and it wasn't that Paul forced him to be circumcised. We know in the first century, in Galatians chapter 6, uh, for example, verse 15, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. We know that circumcision didn't matter anymore. That was to a reminder of the covenant to Abraham, going back to Genesis chapter 17. It was even before the law of Moses, but continued to be part of the Jewish economy under the law of Moses. We also know that Paul wouldn't have forced him to do this, because when those came about who tried to force circumcision, that was opposed. In fact, Acts 15, which is at the time period right before Tim Timothy comes and follows with Paul in the work, they had declared unto Antioch, Paul was part of that, how that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised. Also, when Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he gave an account about something that happened with Titus. Notice, in Galatians 2, 1 through 5, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to, privately to them which are of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily despite our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, then they might bring us unto bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel 
might continue with you. So this was a challenge. You had Jews in the first century, Christians and not, that wanted to tell Gentiles, you you have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised. So here was this line where Timothy was circumcised. I can't even imagine being an adult male going through circumcision. It hurts. just makes me want to quit podcasting right now and run and hide in a corner. But he did it for the sake of the gospel. On the other hand, those that tried to force it, Paul opposed that as a false doctrine. So that was one of the challenges that Gentiles were facing in areas and congregations that they were in. Think about just because Paul taught among the Gentiles, some of the challenges he had to face and unique things that had to occur that were in this period where they're transitioning from the law of Moses to the law of Christ, where you still have people who were under the law of Moses, which was, it wasn't a false doctrine, you know? That was the truth. That was the truth for many, many years, for generation after generation after generation. Now they're being told it's all changed. In Acts 21, we can see some of these challenges. In Acts 21, 17 through 26, says, When we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, said to him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And they're all zealous of the law. Did you catch that? They believe, but but you know what else? They're zealous of the law. They are formed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, take, and purify themselves with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. But thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from strangled, from fornication. This is referring back to Acts 15. Paul took the, the men, next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Think about this challenge. How does Paul continue to teach that we're no longer under the law of Moses, Romans 7, 1 through 6, Colossians chapter 2, verses 5 through 23, that the, the law was nailed to the cross in that context, Colossians 2, 14 through 16. But then also because there are Jews that are transitioning away from the law of Moses and Paul wanting to be all things to all men, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and following, how, how does he keep some of the customs that were under the law? to keep the Jews from being offended. And yet, you know what? You don't have to keep the law. That there's liberty and some things can be kept as customs. The principle of Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, that you can keep days and months and times and years. But on the other hand, you cannot command 
that there be the keeping of days and months and times of years because that would be false. So walking this line for Paul as an apostle was very challenging, was difficult uh, to do. Well, think about that perspective as you continue to read in Acts 21. If, if you were uh, a Gentile and you're observing what's going on here, Acts 21, 27 through 36, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the laws and the place and further brought Greeks also in the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Now notice why they made this charge. For they had seen before with him and the city of Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Wow, right? All the city was moved and the people ran together and took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band and all the Gentiles was in an uproar who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and soldiers, they left beating of Paul. And the chief captain came near, took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, demanded who he was and what he had done. Some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he had come upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, for the multitude of the people followed after him, crying, away with him. Think about the challenge there to be teaching and saying, you know what? I'll keep some of the customs of old just to, just to put the Jews at ease that I'm not teaching against the law. But that doesn't solve the problem because just the idea, just the assumption that a Greek entered into the temple was cause enough for them to want to kill Paul. Now be a Gentile and watch all this. How could I ever call these people my brethren who are so vicious and would murder just at the thought that I might walk into their temple? But we're brethren. Well, how do they have their form of and I am on the outside still? You see this? Isn't that a real dilemma? Like, you sit on your side, we'll be on ours, right? The unbelieving Jews, that, that was, just remember, some that believed needed to be convinced that Paul wasn't teaching against the Gentiles. Think about the unbelieving Jews. Acts 17, we're going to begin at verse 1 and go down through verse 14 and see what happens in Thessalonica. And then after Paul escapes Thessalonica, what happens? So when they passed through Amphibus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went out unto them, three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and some, or and I'm sorry, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason. 
and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These men have turned the world upside down, are come hither also, whom Jason have received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people, the rulers of the city, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, whose coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they, they received the word with all readiness of mind, searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also, stirred up the people, and immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea, by Silas, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. Think of this challenge. The unbelieving Jews were vicious. I'm a Gentile. I've obeyed the gospel of Christ. I've got these enemies because they don't want to see that I'm saved. They don't want to honor my Lord and Savior, which was their promised Messiah. Being a Gentile Christian in the first century, very challenging in some places much more than others. So think about how the Gentiles were unfairly judged. Think about, as we enter into our study today, how important it would be if you lived in the first century to know that among men there's this gravely, terribly unfair standard of judgment, and they're attaching God's name to it. But then to be able to be comforted, to know that though they use God as an unfair judge. He's not. That it comes down to, like we talked about last week, John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words is one that judgeth them. The word I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I'm being judged by the words of Christ. Now, uh, the Jews already had some sense of fair judgment. Isaiah 33, 22, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. They were able to say that. But as a Gentile, you were viewed as a sinner, right? Galatians 2.15, where Paul writes, we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles. The Jews just thought Gentile equals sinner. How important is it to know God's view is not being represented by the, Gen by the Jews, that they are not his spokespeople, that though you're scattered and you're facing persecution, don't be afraid of what that will mean in the judgment. So last week, we talked about God saying, be holy, live holy, because he's holy. Don't live according to your former lust, as we studied through verses 14 through 16. Verse 17, and, so connecting to verses 14 through 16, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, that's huge right there. So let me repeat that. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Calling on the Father. Let's talk about that. Last week we talked about being called by the gospel. Now calling on the Father. It's about addressing God. Going all the way back near the beginning of time in this world, in Genesis 4, 25 and 26, 
Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So the idea is addressing God. If you call on the Father, is the idea of addressing him. There is the initial calling on the Lord. And we've talked about this in previous lessons uh, back when we when we were studying, I think it was 1 Peter 1, uh, 8 and 9, if I remember uh, correctly, we went through some, some different context uh, where we talked about Acts 2.21, calling on the name of the Lord. There, there's that initial uh, period of time where one obeys the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, the responding to the gospel, that faith that comes uh, by hearing, that faith that that is there. And again, I, I know we've talked about this in the past, but just to kind of bring your memory up to speed in Romans 10, 8 through 17, what saith this? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and thy heart, that's the word of faith will we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth in righteousness, with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all rich unto them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except to be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet that preach the gospel of peace, bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So you hear the word of God, you understand the Lord, call upon him. That's that's initial. That's when somebody is initially coming to the Lord, when somebody is initially uh, obeying the gospel. Paul gave an account in Acts chapter 22 that gives us some expansion on this. I don't think we looked at this the last time. I, I know we, we talked about Acts 2, uh, 21, and, and, and talked about it through the context down to verse 41 in the past. Acts 22, 1 through 16, let, let Paul bring this into a different light. It says, Men, brethren, and father, fathers, rather, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. When they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are all this day. I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest doth bear me witness in all the estate of the elders, from whom I also received letters the brethren went to Damascus to bring them where they were bound into Jerusalem for to be punished. came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus, about noon suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, 
Go into Damascus, and it shall be told thee of the things which are appointed thee for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. One Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me, stood, and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So calling on the name of the Lord can in the scriptures mean initial obedience. We know that Paul is not, or not Paul rather, but Peter, we just got done talking about Paul, so Paul on mine. Peter is not talking about initial obedience because the people here are already Christians. Remember what we studied in verses one and two of the first chapter, uh, that, that they're the elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. What we see as we look at this chapter, like what we will get into in our next lesson, verses 18 and 19, for as much as you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Or in verses 22 and 23 of this same chapter, saying you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with your heart permanently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So what we see, and and we can put more scriptures, uh, and, and we'll see as we go through this letter that, you know, they're a holy nation. They're been called out of darkness, 1 Peter 2, 9. They're the called unto eternal glory, 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. They're already Christians, so they're not being told to initially obey the gospel. This phrase, uh, and, and as is used here, uh, can be used. That There's a sense in which that, that word applies to Christians, like uh, in Acts 9, 13 through 14, previous account to Acts 22, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man where this is the conversation Ananias has with the Lord uh, that we don't get in Acts 22. He says, how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. There he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. So who, well, who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting Christians, all those that call on thy name. Or in 2 Timothy 2.22, or Timothy is told, flee also youthful lust, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So calling on, on the name of the Lord isn't just initial obedience, but a continual practice that Christians do as we address God. Think about Stephen when he saw Jesus in Acts 7.59, Stephen calling upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's addressing him. So just think about that. If you address the Father, okay, if you do a word study and you keep it in context, you, you could use Strong's or any dictionary that's numbered to Strong, Strong's number 1941. It's about making an appeal. The word study will show you that same Greek word used in Acts 25 three different times about talking, to, uh, making an appeal unto Caesar. Acts 25, 11, 21, and 25 say this. 
For if I be a fender or have committed anything worthy of death, I, I refuse not to die, but there be none of these things which they have accused me. No man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. That's the same thing as calling on the Father. It's I appeal to the Father. Here that same Greek word is used and it is translated appeal. Verse 21 of Acts 25, when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. And then in verse 25, but when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, himself hath appealed to Augustus, I've determined to send him. There it's you know, appealed. I'm appealing unto God. We also see that in the scriptures, as we kind of study that subject out a little bit, there's calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, when he opens up to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, that letter there says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all and every place that call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. But there is a difference. There's the different difference of looking unto Jesus or appealing unto Jesus and the sense of waiting toward him in salvation or the continuation of salvation or as our advocate, so forth and so on. But then there is the appeal as though it is used in the sense of like, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to approach God. Think about Jesus when he was tempted of the devil. And then that context in Matthew 4, 9 and 10, he said in him, Jesus said unto Satan, that is, all or Satan, I'm sorry, said to Jesus, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, so Jesus unto Satan, get thee hence Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. So sometimes we're talking about if you call on the Father, sometimes just the word God is used. Jesus taught us to worship the Father. So if we're going to call, make an appeal, our call, our appeal in this sense isn't unto Jesus. Our call, our appeal in the sense of worship, in the sense of prayer, is unto the Father. Because that language is used in Psalm 86, 5-7. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer. Attend to the voice of my supplications in the day of my trouble. I will call upon thee, for thou will answer me. Since that, that idea of calling upon the Lord is used there as in prayer. Well, if we're worshiping, if we're praying, we're worshiping to and praying the Father. Jesus taught the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 20 through 24. As the text here reads, Our fathers worship in this mountain, she says to Jesus. Yet you say Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is not talking about himself here. Jesus is deity, Romans 9, 1 through 5, and other passages. But he's not talking about himself. He's talking about to the Father. Prayer, appealing to God, calling upon the Lord, calling upon the Father in the sense of prayer is to the Father. Think about various passages, starting with what Jesus himself taught, Matthew 6, 6 and Matthew 6, 9. But thou, when thou prayest, enter thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father, 
which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. And then to the uh, verse 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So appealing unto who? Calling upon who in the respect of prayer? The Father. And Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thank always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to the Father in the name of, by the authority of Christ. Colossians 1, 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So if we're appealing, we're appealing to the Father. That's why it's written the way it is in 1 Peter 1, 17, though it's not always. It could just be called on the Lord. Well, what am I doing there? I'm appealing to the Father. That language, again, like we talked about in reference to prayer, uh, that's who we're addressing. So if you call upon or if you appeal to the Father, this is about relationship. This is, this is important as we talked about last week when we studied verses 14 through 16. He is my Father when I do His will. 1 John 2, 29 through 3, 10. But the devil is my Father if I'm doing his will, when we look at, at God as our judge, he is the judge that does not respect persons. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, there's hypocrisy. The Jews are practicing hypocrisy in, in, in Rome. He says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for when thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for that thou that Judges doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth to repentance? So listen, you hypocrites. You're judging other people. You're guilty of the same. You're practicing hypocrisy. Do you think just the fact that somebody being a Jew would, would make that okay with God? Oh, oh, okay. You know what? To them were the covenant promises, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just forgive that. Remember, we talked about last week, Acts 17.30, in times past, God winked at this ignorance, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The text continues. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. I don't know what that was, but something's asking me to unlock my device. Forget that. Who will render every man according to his deeds? To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also 
to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Think about that message to Gentiles in the first century with all that we've talked about. That's huge. You mean I'm not condemned just because I'm not of the circumcision? The Father's will is the standard. We're, we're, we're talking about some different things. We know as we look forward that judgment is going to be by Christ. We'll talk more about that. But Christ is judging upon the standard of the will of his Father. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And John 12, 44 through 50, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light in the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I am come not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, one to judge him. The word that I have spoken, same shall judge him in that last day. We've read this already. Now, the next verse, 49. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak thereof, even as the Father said to me, so I speak. Jesus came teaching the will of the Father. The Father committed judgment to the Son. John 5, 22 through 30 says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to unto life. Verily, verily, I send to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that shall that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so he given to the Son to have life in himself. He hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming, and the which all are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good on the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Judgment committed to the Son, but the Son is judging based on what? The will of the Father. So we can say God the Father is the judge. We could say God the Son is the judge. In a sense, God the Holy Spirit's a judge too, because through him, Men wrote and spoke the words of Christ, which were ultimately the will of the Father. Put all that together, right? Those of the Father are of the Son and vice versa. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said this in verse 10, And all are mine and are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. It's one and the same. Think about what Jesus said to the apostles, part of which we talked about in last week's podcast, John 14, 23 through 26, I think we talked about 23 and 24 last week. Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. These things have I spoken to you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. In John 16, 
12 through 15. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive a mind, show it unto you. All things the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. Who's Jesus keep coming back to? The will of the Father. Now, call on or make your appeal to the Father, who without respect of person judgeth what? According to every man's work. Now, I want you to remember, it's going to be the judgment seat of Christ, but the Father's will is the standard, right? Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Not according to who your mother and father were. According to your own works. For the Gentile in the first century, this is huge. It should be for all of us. We will answer for what we do. It's a fair judgment because judgment is based upon the actions of man. And look, that was even true under the old law. So this isn't news to the Jews. There are a lot of Old Testament passages. I'll give you a few, like Psalm 62, 12. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Isaiah, during a time of apostasy. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Say ye to the righteous that it should be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given unto him. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Think about the simplicity of God's judgment. It is and has been, is and has been in accordance to what God has seen man do. Folks, that's that, that's simple. That's simple, right? In Jeremiah 32, 17 through 19, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompense the iniquity of the fathers in the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the Son of Man to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Folks, it's simple. It's simple. Right? It's simple. According to your works. So, the judgment scene. Jesus came delivering the Father's will. Okay? Real simple. Jesus came doing the Father's will. Jesus taught the Father's will. Jesus goes into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes revealing the words of Christ to the apostles. 
based on the Father's will. And the judgment day, we appear before Judge Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he done, whether it be good or bad. It is not who your mother and father was, is. It is not who your grandmother and grandfather is, was. None of these things are the standard of judgment. The standard of judgment is the will of the Father, right? The will of the Father. And following the will of the Father will get you eternal life. Disobeying the will of the Father will get you eternal damnation. There it is. Based on what you do, it's up to you. You get to set the judgment scene. They can be comforted in that. We can be comforted in that. So let's talk about passing the time. The idea of sojourning. And I think it could be put into perspective by something that David said. In 1 Chronicles 29, 15, We're strangers before thee, and sojourners. As were all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. We're, we're, we're going through this earth and we're going towards something. We, you know, People think a child is born and now life has begun. No, we're, we're, we're just, we're just kind of in the waiting room of where, to, where, where we're to head, right? We're, we're like, we're in the holding spot. The Greek term translated sojourning is used in Acts 13, 17. And it's used in the King James Version translated as strangers, where it says, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. With a high arm brought he them out of it. Think about that. We're strangers. Our citizenship, if you're a Christian, Philippians 3.20, our conversation, that is citizenship, is in heaven. From whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like to his glorious body, according to the working that whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. We're just, we're just non-citizens of this world. So he's telling these Gentile Christians, you're sojourning. You're passing through. You're not part of this world. We're separated from this world, right? That doesn't mean... That were strangers to God, though. Remember the Gentiles in Ephesus? To them, it was written in Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Strangers in this world. Sojourners in this world. But not in the kingdom. So with that, pass their time where you're strangers. Here, that is on earth. In fear. I want to talk about this for a little bit. What's this mean? Should a Christian who is faithful to God be trembling at the thought of the righteous judgment of God? Is that the meaning of this? I want to give you some food for thought. In 1 John 4, 17 through 18, it says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Whew. Think about that. Now notice as it goes on. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So like last week, be holy for he is holy. If I'm holy as he is holy, if I'm conducting myself in the right way, 
I can look on, look on to and make my appeal to my heavenly father who judges according to works. Now, what's my works? Holy like him. My conduct is holy like his, right? The text in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now let's reconcile this. You've got one passage talking about be strangers in this world in fear and another passage saying, now perfect love casteth out fear. There is a place for fear in the life of everybody. Let's think about it by talking about some scriptures. In Psalm 119, verse 53, horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. So the psalmist looks upon the wicked and he is fearful. For who? For them. Now, verses 119 and 120 of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 119 through 120. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I'm afraid of thy judgments. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of what happened to the wicked. You and I ought to be a fearful in the sense of if we cross the boundary of the law of God, if we become transgressors, we become sinners, and the wages of sin is death. 1 John 3, 4 and Romans 6, 23. Another scripture to give thought of. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. I ought to fear being disobedient. I have nothing to be afraid of when I'm obeying. I ought to fear the result if I am disobedient. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, God is jealous. The Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. I need to know that even when God winked at their ignorance, he still didn't acquit the wicked. I need to understand that there are consequences, and those consequences are eternal for transgressions that I may abide in. That is something I should fear. In Acts 10.35, Peter, in the context of Cornelius and his household conversion, and every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. I ought to have the type of fear that keeps me doing righteousness not going back to unrighteousness. Acts 13, 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, whosoever among you feareth God, to you is this word of salvation sent. If I'm lost, I ought to fear so that I look to the word of salvation. To the saints in Philippi, Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Keep going forward, knowing that there are consequences for disobedience. Because when people do not have that fear, Psalm 36, 1 through 4 says, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flattereth himself in his own eyes, until his iniquity be found hateful. The words of his mouth are in iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He said to himself in a way that is not good, he abhorreth not evil. So the wicked doesn't fear God. There's no fear of God in their heart. So when they do evil, they don't fear the consequences. 
Like when somebody says, sees a sign and it says, do not enter. Amazingly, I can speak from a past of sinful youth when I was young in the world, having no fear of God, having no fear of consequences, no trespassing signs didn't mean anything. But I'll tell you what would change. If it said electric fence, <laughs> well, why? Because I'm not going to touch that fence because I don't want to be electrocuted. Or if there was razor wire, barbed wire didn't quite cause any kind of fear. Just put a blanket, coat, shirt over the barbed wire. Razor wire, on the other hand, wow, that, that's fearful. The sign that says do not enter, that wasn't what caused the fear. It was the consequences of crossing the barbed wire. How about a sign that says do not enter and then there's two lions on the other side of something? The lions cause the fear because if I enter, I know I might become food for a lion. Folks, you can understand that and the carnal. I have nothing to fear if I don't go over that fence. I fear going over the fence because of what's on the other side or what's at the top. What consequences are there? Fearing consequences. That's the point. Proverbs 14, 16. A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. What did fear do? Get out. Proverbs 16, 6. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Get out. 1 Timothy 5, 20. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear. Fear what? What's going to happen if I sin? That type of fear brings about obedience. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. It's not debilitating, though. See, fearing the judgment day because you're not living right is debilitating. Fearing the judgment day in the sense of it's going to fuel me to do right? Proverbs 28, 14, think about this. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth heart shall fall on the mischief. If I fear God, I'm obey him. Not that I'm afraid of the judgment day. Not that I'm afraid of the eternal reward. I'm afraid what happens if I sin. This is not supposed to be understood like fear that existed under the law of Moses. The Hebrew writer wrote of this in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fearing death is debilitating. A psalm puts this forth. Psalm 55, 4. My heart is sore pain within me, and the terrors of death are falling upon me. Oh, we have something to look forward to at the end of this life physical, paradise, like we see in Luke 16, 19 through 31, or like we see with the thief on the cross, paradise. We have eternal life to look forward to in the resurrection. We don't have to fear those things. We just have to fear what happens if we drive off the road, if we depart from that straight and narrow way that we talked about last week when we read Matthew 7, 13 and following. Faithful Christians, we don't have a reason to be shaking in our boots about the judgment day. Quite the opposite. In Romans 8, 15, 
You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So that's the idea of making your appeal to God, who we can count on to judge every man according to his work. Peter, in the second letter that he writes in 2 Peter 3.15, account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom, given unto him and written unto you. We can look forward to salvation. On the other hand, if I'm going to disobey, I can't think that I'm somehow secure in my salvation. If I disobey, I have something to look forward to. This is where fear ought to keep me on the path because disobedience brings about something. Think about what's written in Hebrews 10, 26-31 to Christians. It says, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose you shall be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and that done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For he know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think on that. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because if you disobey, there's consequences. Fiery indignation vengeance, and that because of what you've done unto His only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If they then, or we now, come before God, if we make our appeal unto God as obedient children, going back to last week, living holy, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, we don't have to fear. Think about some passages with me. John 5, 24 Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hear that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me. He hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That, that's, that's wonderful. I, you, they, if we're faithful to God, have everlasting life to look forward to. Romans 8.1 says, there is, now the, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Well, how do I get into Christ Jesus? Galatians 3.26 and 27, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. How do I get into Christ? I'm converted into Christ. I'm baptized into Christ. There's more to it. That's a simplification. But a simplification fits here. I don't have to worry about condemnation. To Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, 7-12, Paul wrote, For God hath not given unto us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, because Paul writes from prison here, but be thou partaker of thine afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
Why aren't you? I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's not fear. That's looking forward to, right? When Paul was at the end of his physical life as he's writing this letter, here's his mindset. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me of that day, not to me only, but all them that love him and his appearing. He's, he's ready. He's not shaking in his boots. He knows God's promises are true. He wasn't in fear. He kept the faith. He finished the course. He had fought the fight. He's not in fear. I have seen faithful brothers and sisters in Christ depart this world who were confident, who knew that they had eternal life awaiting them, who knew that they would be in paradise until that day of judgment. And they left this world in perfect peace. I've seen the opposite too. Matter of fact, here in El Paso, I've seen both among multiple people. A brother like Bill Wright, a sister uh, in Christ like Sister Edwards, who left this world in peace. There was another woman, and I'll just say another woman. And I was with her as she neared the end of this life, and she was already in torment because she was like Judas. She had lived a life of appearance-only Christianity. Folks, you want the end of your life to be like Paul's. In 1 John 2, 28, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Yes. And you know, you know, you know from within. And that same letter in 1 John 3, 20 and 21, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. You know, you know. If you're uneasy about the judgment day, you know. You better fix something. Because if you're disobedient, Colossians 3, 6 says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Now listen, the context we've been studying, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, is all about the hope of what is to come. Peter's not trying to persuade them otherwise. He's trying to put them in mind that the judgment of God is according to your works. Go through this life knowing that and that if you're disobedient, you'll be judged for that disobedience. That type of fear, like we studied and saw, like we contemplated and thought about in this lesson, that type of fear, we looked at Proverbs 14, 16, 16, 6, etc., causes men to depart from evil. I know that God's going to judge me according to my works. So when I appeal to him, I'm appealing to him, not that he's going to have respect of persons, but that he's going to look at what I do. I can't profess to do good. I actually have to do good. I have to be holy as he is holy. 
our next discussion is going to be on 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. So this ties back to what we're talking about, right? Past the time you're sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but, in these, but was manifest in these last times for you. Folks, I hope this study has been thought-provoking, edifying, challenging, and if you're not right, cause you to fear. It's time to get ready for Christ's return. It may have happened before this podcast even gets out there. It may happen before this podcast ends. Jesus could come at any time. Don't just think about death. Don't think you can hide in a shelter and have all these types of things to protect you. The judgment time, that's that's done. It's over. That's what we're preparing for. If you're not right, get right. Call me up and I'll help you. 915-525-5794. Contact me through the website, www.wordsoftruth.net. Plenty of study materials there too. But listen, you don't have to just go and try to figure it all out on your own. Take advantage of my years of studies in the scriptures where I can help expedite and point you in the right way quickly. I can take your questions and we can answer them. We can figure out that if you're not ready, how you can be ready. So that when you think about the judgment day, you could think about it as a good day instead of something to fear. It is wonderful to be at peace. That peace exists in Christ. I'd love to help you find it if you don't have it already. So if all goes according to plan, next podcast be on Tuesday if our Lord doesn't return first, and so forth and so on. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time, I will say goodbye.